0: Many of you will be happy to note that my pants are completely intact this morning. So if some of you are very confused right now. Last week you may, if you were here, and many of you were on vacation, but if you were here you realized I had a malfunction and um, my pants were held together with binder clips yesterday last week, but this week I have a perfectly good pair of pants and we're good. So everything's st- starting off on a great foot this week. Uh, What an excellent thing it is to be with fellow believers worshiping the Lord together, isn't it? And the Lord gave our cars washes on the way in today, and that's even better. So we have that bonus, but what a wonderful thing it is and to sing and worship together collectively, pray together collectively, hear the Word of God, read, studied, understood, resonate with together as believers. What a wonderful thing that that is. And uh, this morning I kind of expected, honestly, Uh, Katie and Joe, who were leading us this morning to have their trophy right in the middle between the two of them from the amazing race yesterday. But I was happy to see their humility along with their other teammates, Lydia and Brandon. I don't want (laughs) to let you guys off the hook either, but their humility of just singing and serving the Lord this morning. Before we jump into this, let us pray to our God one more time before we open up his word. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. And uh, we thank you for the honor That it is to be able to study your word together collectively. To be able to look into this eternal word that you've given us. This incredible gift to know exactly what your heart is. To understand exactly what your will is for our lives. That you're not a God of confusion but that you bring it right to us so that we can understand that. And we in here who have put our faith in your son, those that you've sovereignly saved, you've also given us your Holy Spirit to illuminate this word to help us understand it, to be able to connect the dots and to see exactly how we are to apply this today, tomorrow, throughout the rest of the week, to be able to take this to this fallen world that is around us, that you have sovereignly put in our place for this time, this moment, this season in our life. We thank you for the incredible study of Galatians and the richness of it. I pray that we are much like Luther that we marry ourselves to it. That it becomes part of who we are. That as we studied in the first hour, that we be like the Puritans. And we, we, are, we are just so filled with your word that it oozes out of us. I pray that be true today. And I pray that as we, as we study and continue this study, that you help us to learn it. And we give you glory for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, as we continue through Galatians, we see that we are... We're going to have some good news today. We've got some great news today as we've gone through some of the minutia of going through the doctrine and the the argument that Paul has been making about the law and the necessity of the law, but the fact that it is not quite what we definitely need, that we needed the covenant of faith, that it wasn't enough, it points us to the Messiah, but it isn't the Messiah But today as we transition into that, we understand that there is the promises of this covenant go beyond this life alone. That there are promises that are are to us who are in Christ that go into the eternal, that give us hope. This morning in the first hour, if you were here, we heard that Puritan mindset that I think maybe we sometimes lack. The, The mindset that the day of our death is even greater for the believer than the day of our birth. Seems morbid a little bit, but... We know that we are an eternal being, that because of Christ and his work on that cross, the defeat of death because of that and because of his grace bestowed on us, there is more to this life than just what we see. There is more to who we are and what we are in Christ beyond the living years. And that is a great hope for all of us in here who have lost loved ones who have put their faith in Christ that is a great and blessed hope. And so this week as we as we continue on into that incredible instruction, incredible promise, there is still application to be made for us today. What we don't want to be is those that, who are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Now that is not what we're called to be. We are called to be ambassadors, those who God is making his appeal through. And because of that there should be a, a vigor, a passion, a zeal to not just preach his word, but to do it. So I pray that we can see that today. Let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do today. If we can review very quickly, I'd like to do that. But here's where we're going to go. So this morning as we consider verses 26 through 29, as for many of you, we're finally going to finish chapter 3. I kind of have been slogging through that with us, and I think that it's, it's, been, it's been full. But it's going to be nice to transition into chapter 4 when we get some of this application. But as we transition today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see a comparison and a contrasting. The children of God versus the children of Satan. That's what we'll see here. This concept of being baptized into Christ in verse 27 the oneness that we have as believers in Christ and what that really means to us and what application we need to take from that and then the concept of being heirs according to the promise that we'll see as we go forward. So there's a lot here today that we'll see. Quick review from last week if you were here with us. This is what we saw last week. The concept from 19 through 25 is that the law is good. Not only is it good, it's perfect, but that's the problem, isn't it? The law is perfect and we're not. We have a perfect God with a perfect standard who's perfectly holy, and what the law shows us is that we cannot hit his standard. We cannot be who we need to be. The knowledge of our sin is brought out in the law, and of course that drives us to a faith in Christ for those of us who are saved. The covenant law, the covenant mosaic law, is good But it isn't sufficient, and it's inferior to the beautiful justification by faith in Christ that we preach so often here that we desperately need that gives us the redemption of our sin, that the ransom was paid, justified by faith. So last week we saw this, and it pointed us to this concept of a guardian. And you may remember as we went through this concept of the guardian, what that really is is that the law was a disciplinarian. Uh, The law was protecting us, keeping us, holding us, convicting us, certainly. But those guardians you remember in in that Greek culture, in the Jewish Greek culture even, were very strict. They were tough, and they caused us to long for something else. If If we consider being a child who's under that strict tutelage of someone who's guiding them on the way, they're looking forward to that moment where there's freedom, that there's time where they can be on their own two feet. That idea is what Paul was trying to get us to, that we are now disciples of Christ, that our, our moment in time has come because of Christ. Now that Christ is here, in Galatians 3.25, where we concluded we're, not, we're no longer under that tutor or disciplinarian, but we're a disciple or a learner of Christ and you may remember we kind of finished with this and i'd like to go back to this passage. What a beautiful thing it is. And i'm going to ask you if you even though it's on the screen, it's kind of small. I'd like to go to Matthew 11 to get us started on the right foot. So go to Matthew chapter 11 with me before we jump back into Galatians. I think this is an important passage to look at. We looked at last week just the last few verses here, and i'd like to look at it in context. I think it will help us as we transition this morning. So Matthew chapter 11 as we get started, Matthew chapter 11, and I, uh, I was in the wrong book myself, so it gives, it gives you a few extra moments in the sword drill here. You, there we go, Matthew chapter 11, your moments are over. Here we go, Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, "'I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth,' that you have hidden these things, God's eternal truths, we heard about that in the first hour as well, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Believers are described as children by Christ often. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I pray that's you today that you're in Christ, that you've listened to that call and the conviction and you've repented and believed. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me just pause on that for a moment. The law can make us heavy laden and burdened, understanding that we fall short. Our own sin can be such a weight, a prison, as we talked about last week, a slave to this sin, that it can be a heavy weight, I think, in part, Christ is speaking of this, certainly the trials and the troubles and the difficulties of the world, but our own guilt, our own pressure from not meeting the standard. I think that's in part here. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. See, we're learning from Christ now. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to be in the mindset of David that we long and hunger for righteousness, that his words are what we desire. That should be that Puritan view that is, that is it's just so important to us, that it's so encompassing us, that we desire it on a daily basis, that we rely on it. It is our daily food. That is what we're talking about here. And it gives rest to our soul. We'll see a few Puritans speak of this today as we go through this, that it, as we consider God's word and following it, uh, that's just what sustains us and gives us the peace and the comfort that the Christian life really looks like. That's what it really looks like. So that's last week. That's what we saw. We're now followers, disciples of Christ. Praise be to him that that be the case. Praise be to him that we are now not still under the burden and the yoke and the prison of our own sin and the law that exposes it. Thanks be to God that that's where we sit today, if you're in Christ. So now back to Galatians chapter 3. Turn to Galatians 3 as we start our study and continue this. Finish up chapter 3 of Galatians. Galatians 3, as we transition from 25, talking about this tutor, what we see now is a comparison that we will have. Are you children of God or are you children of Satan, children of the devil? Here's what we see in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. For the sake of time, we're, or 3, rather, verse 26. We're going to take these one at a time rather than read them all at once. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Hmm. Paul clearly speaking to the believer here. This isn't universal salvation. Paul clearly is saying... For those of you who have heard the message of the gospel, have responded to it in repentance and faith, because grace has been bestowed upon you, you are this. You are all sons of God, children of God. Through faith, that happened because of what he did, the true child of God. All people are made in his image, but only those who have been redeemed are his children. There's a distinction there. I think there's a tendency for us in an all-inclusive style world to believe that all of us are children of God, i 'll hear honestly, people who, who have good intentions make those statements to make people feel good, but I think it 's a dangerous thing to do. If we just globally say, well we 're all children of God, that 's not true. Based on god 's word, which is our standard, which is, uh, is the only rock that we have to hold to for basic, honest and unequivocable truth, that 's not true. Only those who have put their faith in Christ are truly children of God. Here's what Paul's speaking of here. Paul is speaking and writing to believers specifically and making this assertion. Through faith in Christ, all redeemed believers are spiritual children of God. Now remember... The context here is kind of comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish law, the Jewish tradition speaking to these Jewish Judaizers who were trying to infuse back some of the law into the gospel of grace that, listen, yes, you're children of God if if you're part of the Hebrew nation, but that's not enough. To be spiritual children of God is what you really need. That's what you desperately have to have. And so as we unpack this, naturally we're going to see God's word begin to defend and define and interpret itself. Peter says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, his grace, because of his plan, his will. Notice this, he has caused us. Hmm. That's an important phrase, don't you suppose? You didn't cause you. He caused you to do this. This should bring up in your mind the Ephesians two one through three that you were dead. Dead men can't do anything. You were going the way of the world, but God, verse four, that should make you think this way. We need to consider as well as we as we go into Ephesians later on today in Ephesians chapter two, that He's made us alive to Christ, alive in Christ Jesus. He's done this. This was His initiative, His inertia. His will, His power, His love for you as we sit back and think about this. He's caused us to be born again, born from above. Of course, this is exactly the conversation that he has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Reading, reading Nicodemus' mind, if you ever study that very carefully, Nicodemus didn't have a chance to ask a single question, did he? God knows your heart. And He knew he got to the heart of the matter. How can I be saved? And he jumped right to it. You must be born again. And of course, as we continue to unpack John 3, that is God's doing, born from above. But let's continue. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, notice, to an inheritance Hmm. that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The important part of He has caused it is that He also keeps it. Hmm. Isn't that a great thing? Aren't you thrilled beyond your mind That it doesn't depend on you that your salvation is secure? Because I would have failed it on my way to, to the church this morning. I've got a long drive. I'd have lost it a few times before I got here today. But that's not the case. My Savior holds it in heaven for me. Undefiled, imperishable. And notice, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. His power, not my own for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time aren't you if you're in christ so happy to be a child of god this morning yeah, amen me too me too unravaged untouched unfading it's held untouchable mm. he's qualified you for this according to colossians chapter one that's because of him not because of you paul continues this argument in romans chapter eight being a child of god For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who have been saved are also empowered by the Holy Spirit to to be able to understand the things we're discussing today, that they're reasoning together today with, with one another. Notice this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's speaking of the law. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Daddy, that's what we say. We look up to our Father, knowing what he's done for us, so dependent on him that we call him Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now notice Hebrews chapter 1, right at the beginning when we went through that study, you might remember we spent a little time speaking of Jesus being the heir of all things. Once again, this this concept of being an heir, we, we have no arrogance in this. The idea that we were adopted had nothing to do with us. This had to do with the fact that all things were handed to him. This should hearken back in your mind to Daniel chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days hands the keys to the kingdom, the authority to the Son of Man. Have you ever wondered why Christ uses that term of himself so often? More often than any other title. The Son of Man. He has authority to do this. This is who you are serving. This is your king. Amazing. That he has provided this. But I want you to notice at the end of this that Christ does this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, notice provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. If you're truly in Christ, you endure, you go through trouble and pain. And in, in our number one, we heard about really the benefit, the blessing of persecution. Uh, we're living in an age where it's coming. We've talked about this quite a bit here. We, we went through that series with me. We went through the series of um, to be ready for this, that, that we are not going to be silent, that there's going to be moments in time where we have to stand for the truth. That's the refiner's fire. Are you willing to do that? This isn't earning salvation. This is proof of salvation. And that's what we want to look at it as. And what is, what is it what we see from Christ? Here's what Jesus says. He came to his own, his own people didn't receive him. John speaks of this, of Christ rather. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, mm. who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Praise be to God that he handles this. You're a child of God because of what he's done. Now let's look at the flip side of this. I mentioned that we'll be back in Ephesians a few times. Ephesians chapter 2 says, there is a contrast to this. To be a children of God is an assumption I may be making here. I cannot look upon all of us and look at all of you and know exactly who is in Christ and who is not. Oh, as time goes on, I may see the fruit of the Spirit. As time goes on, I may see one who endures. I may see one who loves the brotherhood. Talking about marks of the true believer. I may see one who proclaims the name of Jesus, never denies his name. These marks of the true believer. But as I sit here, it would be a shame if I took this pulpit and not challenge you with this. Here's what Paul says. There are some who are sons of disobedience. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Notice, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. You think, okay, sons of disobedience, that's just an idea that I'm, I'm just part of that side. That, that I just kind of lean towards sin because of my sin nature. Well, it's a little deeper than that. Sons of disobedience goes a little further than that. Look at how James put this, puts this. When we consider sons of disobedience, that that's just kind of how we all are. That this, this idea of sin is just, well, it's not really my fault. It's, it's just who we are. Well, look, look at what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Or we could, we could also say that Satan made me do it. By the way, Eve tried that. That didn't go too well for her either. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But look it. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we can't just give ourselves a break. We heard that in the first hour as well. And I, I picked up a quote here from, from uh, Edwards, and I thought it was interesting. Before I jump into this quote, let me explain a few things that you're seeing on this screen. I loved Piper's uh, discussion about Edwards this morning. I, I think many of you were picking up on this that Edwards had this God-entranced worldview. Did you catch that wording that he said? A God-entranced, that he was so hyper-focused on that that he said it's even more than a worldview. He said it was in his heart, his eyes, his ears, his life. Did you hear Piper say that? That's the sort of man he was because he was so entranced in, in God's word. Just an incredible way to look at this. What we're looking at here is the original copy of this particular sermon. I thought it was kind of neat. What's ironic about this is you'll never guess where I picked this up. The Yale uh, Library has this. They're not preaching anything that's on this page, but it is in their library, and they hold on to that because, of course, we've seen that's one of the very early Puritan-founded uh, 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 organizations or uh, places of learning. But this particular, notice the particular note of this of this title of this sermon let me go back here the, that wicked men are the children of the devil that's what he called his sermon i can you imagine him starting that as this title he says all right some of you are children of the devil buckle up here i go and that's how edwards was but here's what he says to, to, This is a long introduction to this quote but i think it's important to our discussion in one sense man alone was the author of his own sin not the devil otherwise it would not be his sin That is, man by his own free and voluntary act committed the first sin and therefore destroyed the image of God and wholly corrupted his own nature. This was done without any compulsion from the devil. God did not so leave man to Satan's will as to suffer him, to compel him to eat of the forbidden fruit. Yet Satan was the contriver of the business. I like that. He was the contriver of the business. He, by his own devilish subtleties, ordered a temptation as to deceive man and to tempt him into sin. But notice, it wasn't his fault, it was our fault. And that's still true today. It's still true today. So as we consider this, we cannot give ourselves a break and say, well, that's just who we are. Yes, that is who we are. And because of the realization of who we are, that should turn us to Christ. We should have a desire to be a child of God rather than this, which is what Edwards continues on in that particular sermon. John chapter 8, here's what Christ says. And by the way, in verse 31, and uh, I'm not going to have you turn there for the sake of time, Jesus is talking to the Jews who believed in him. This is interesting. I want you to consider the context. In verse 31, it tells us these were Jews who were following him. And as he began to preach difficult doctrine, difficult things to understand and embrace about who he was. Remember, they had some preconceived ideas about who the Messiah was. And Christian, let me just pause Believer, non-believer here, do you have some preconceived ideas about who Jesus is? Because I'm going to tell you where you get your ideas, where you should get your ideas. It's in this beautiful book that's sitting on your lap right now. That's where Jesus is found. That's where we understand who he is. That's where we are disciplined to know who he is, not in our own mind. But they struggled with this, so keep that in mind. That's the context of what we're looking at. And picking this up in verse 37, here's what Jesus says. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. That was their big argument. Yet you seek to kill me. His own followers already had it in their heart. They hadn't said this. He wasn't talking to Pharisees here. This isn't Sadducees. This isn't scribes. These are people who claim to follow him. You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, he talks a little bit more in between as they argue and kind of decide who's who, and they start challenging him on who he was born to. Notice he then gets real specific. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are your fa- You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I think there is a misconception that Jesus was nice all the time. Maybe you didn't read that very carefully. That doesn't sound very nice. If you started in the middle of a conversation, you started by saying in the, in the start of it that you do what you're, you've heard from your father, and then later on in the conversation you say, you're of your father, the devil. That doesn't sound very nice. But it's true if you reject Christ. See, it's either one side or the other. You're either on Christ's side or you're his enemy. You're at enmity with Christ and notice what he says about Satan, who Edward spoke of in the garden. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Notice Christ is connecting us to that if we reject his truth. He is connecting us to that mindset and to that character if we reject his truth. This isn't the only place we find this. John speaks of this in 1 John as well. 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And contextually, we start in verse 9. No one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and cannot keep on sinning. So we think about this as, again, not earning salvation. It's the character of a true believer, the evidence of a true believer. What does it look like? He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God, born from above. Have we already heard this? Yes, we have. There's consistency in Scripture, isn't there? By this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And what does that mean to practice this? But That means that you believe it's true. I don't mean that you're perfect every day, or we would have a whole lot of trouble here. I haven't seen everything you've done, but I know what the Bible says about you. You can't hide from me. And I don't know what it says about me, and I can't hide from you either. It's not about perfection is, do you desire to please him? Do you desire to do what his word says? When you hear it, does it convict you and does it hurt you? Does it make you feel as though you have to do better next time? That's what you want the Bible to do for you. That's what the Bible will do for you because sanctification is something he will be working in you, as we'll see later on. Is that what we're talking about? Do you practice it because you see it and you're an athlete who sees that we didn't do so hot that time. I'm going to practice this week and get better. I see that I failed in this particular area. Here's my instruction. Here's what my coach says, and I'm going to work on that. I'm going to drill that this week because I need to be better. That's practicing righteousness. That's what we do if we're in Christ. The nonbeliever looks at it, and it's detestable to them. They look at the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it bothers them to the point where they say, I don't want to hear that anymore. I don't want to to be a part of that. That's someone who is a child of the devil because he's a murderer and a liar from the start. So loving your brother is part of that. Loving God's word is part of that. This is all what God calls us to do. Now, just to consider this, here's what our calling is. I want to go back to this. We'll go back to that uh, Matthew passage in a second. Look at what Luther says about this. I want you to consider where you sit here if you're a Christian today. Ministerial work, and that's you too, is to make saints out of sinners, living souls out of the dead, children of God out of the servants of the devil. So as we look at the world around us that is lost, we have a job to do. So three weeks ago, I said every week, I'm going to challenge you to get this word out to the people around you, and I'm going to tell you every week. Luther's telling you, and I'm telling you, it is our job to see the lost, to see the servants of the devil, and to give them the good news. That's our calling. All right, let's go back here for a second. Go to Matthew chapter 13. I think this is an excellent passage to look at to help us understand this concept and our job in this moment in time in human history. Matthew chapter 13. This is a particular parable that we don't look at too often, but I think it helps us with this study today. Matthew chapter 13 as we turn there. Jesus, of course, as we consider this, and we've already mentioned being spirit-filled and infused in understanding Things because Christ has given us the ability to do this. Remember, uh, it's been a few years when we went through the parables study that this is to the believer. Parables are for the believer, discerned by us. Some of this is hidden from the non believer, it's foolishness to them. Uh, Cindy just had her cataracts done this week. She had both of her cataracts done at the same time, and she can now see clearly. And isn't that the way this goes for the believer? That this book seems a little confusing. Until you're a believer. And when Christ comes into you and he infuses you, his Holy Spirit, that paraclete comes in illuminating all of this, it's as if scales have fallen from your eyes. And there it is. It's right for us. So we can see this this morning in this parable as well. So chapter 13, verse 24. Here's what Jesus says. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. An enemy has done it. That's interesting. So the servants said to him, Then do what." Do you do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, "No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time it will it will tell the reapers. I'll tell the reapers rather. Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Now Jesus is going to define this for us here in a moment, but let me explain a little bit about what we're reading here. The weeds that are spoken of here in this time, in this place, in Judea, are probably Darnell-particular type of, of seed, which looked exactly like wheat. As a matter of fact, as it was growing side by side, even experts couldn't always tell the difference between the two. It wasn't until time passed. So apply this to the Christian walk. We have a lot of people who claim to be in Christ, don't we? In and amongst us. I think this is a challenge to believers and churches collectively that we have a lot of amongst us who claim Christ, but they aren't true. And it takes time to see that. It takes time to see how that comes to fruition. And as it comes to maturity, we don't know if that's a weed or if that's wheat until they show some fruit. The seed pops up. That's when they know. then then as time goes on, we can see the difference. Here's what Jesus says, and I'll bring up his explanation, although you have it in front of you as well. Here's what Christ says. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So that's us. Those of us who have been been saved, those of us, by the grace of God, have heard the gospel and believed on it, repented of our sins, and he's changed our lives, but the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Again, we have a distinction that they are sons of the devil, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. This is an eternal question. It's an eternal decision. So, back to our, our quote from Luther Your job is to make children of God out of the servants of the devil. See, we're not the reapers, we're not the ones making the judgment call. We can see them as time goes on, but we need to recognize that they're all around us. We can't take for granted that we necessarily know for sure oh, they're saved, they're saved we don't know that. Our job is to cast the seed. Our job is to continue to cast the seed until the work is done. All right, Galatians chapter three, verse 27. Let's continue on. Here's what 327, if you're back in Galatians, I'll give you a second. Galatians three 27. We'll go a little quicker through this particular section. Verse 27, here's what it says. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Some great language here. The words that we see in the Greek This particular Greek word is "were baptized." It's from the root of "baptizio," which simply means to be immersed. This isn't talking about water baptism here. The context doesn't lead us to that. This is talking about immersion in Christ. This is talking about a spiritual baptism. This is metaphorical. This is what this is. This is this is something that is beyond just the water baptism concept. If we go to Romans chapter 6, we get another wording just like this, where Paul, who also authors Romans 6, you see this interplay between Romans and Galatians a lot, he says it this way, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Clearly we're not talking about water baptism, this is a metaphor. Think of it kind of like somebody being immersed in their work. Or when something is hard and you get thrown into the fire, it's a baptism of fire. Think of it that way, that we have been immersed, that we feed on Christ, this concept that he is our all in all, he is our life. That concept here is that's what happens to the believer. But notice what we're engaged in, what we are part of. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, not water baptism, but this salvation that came when the Holy Spirit changed us, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life today and in the future. So we have a combination of things happening here. This is a spiritual baptism. This is an immersion in the person and the work and the complete work of Christ on the cross and, of course, the defeat of death out of that tomb. That's what Christ calls us to be. Paul says it this way to the church in Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We covered this weeks and weeks ago. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's more than salvation eternally, it is a changed life now. If I'm putting on Christ, if I'm crucified with Christ, I am a new creation. Second Corinthians five seventeen should be jumping into your head, right? Because of what Christ has done, because of his atoning work, he's made me a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's what begins to happen. The newness of life, because he's he's done this for me, because he's my all in all, because he's the son of God, because he's the son of man, I now am a different person. Ezekiel tells us that we have a new heart. He's given us what was a heart of stone, a heart of flesh. That's what we're talking about here. This is a spiritual putting on. But you notice he makes it a little personal. He says you need to put this on. Now, before we jump to the wrong conclusion that it is all about you and all about your effort, that is necessary, but we need the Holy Spirit to be a part of this. This is a long passage, but bear with it. Here's what it says. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Now, as I read verse 8, you think, what is he counting as loss?" Well, let me tell you the context. He's talking about following the law. He said, I was the best of the best. I was a rock star in the world of following the law. I was one who was probably going to be in the upper echelon amongst the Pharisees. I was the best of the best. He says, but I count that everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Everything he held to that he thought was salvation that was not, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, what we've been preaching and teaching for the last several months, really. Here's what it says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm all in from life to death to resurrection. It's all that I am. I'm everything that he calls me to be. And if he calls me to give my life for him, I'm willing. If he calls me to suffer for him, I'm willing. If he calls me to be persecuted or ridiculed, I'm willing. That's the mark of the believer. That you put this on, you decide that I'm going to wake up each day and be the servant of Christ that I've called. he's called me to be. That he's asked me to do this. Romans 13 says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime. I just heard MacArthur Preaching this this morning as well. I was getting ready. Not not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality. That's all around us today. The the temptations of the flesh and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. That's all around us today. This is a, a, a doctrine about social media right there. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You notice Paul thinks that we still have to fight the good fight every day. It just seems like he, he knows the world we're living in and he's challenging us that, yes, you're in Christ, you're a new creation, you're brand new, the hope is in glory, it's coming, but there's an activity that you have to do here. There's a discipline that, you're, that you have to do here that, that we need to consider who we are in him. If I'd like to take the time to do this. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter four. I'm gonna bring some of this up on the screen today, but I wanna see the context. Go to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians 4. I'm going to have on the screen verses 20 through 24, but I'd like to look at it in context. So go with me to Ephesians 4. I beat you there this time. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Putting on Christ, this concept of the activity, the discipline of the believer, that this is important. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about the non-believer, oftentimes referenced as Gentiles here. In the futility of their minds, futility of their minds, going after these things that the heart desires that are so temporary, so selfish. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Let me just do a quick commentary on this for a second. Ignorance is not knowing the truth, not having knowledge of the truth. If we fall into this category, it's because we're going after what we believe to be true or what the world has told us is true. We only get out of ignorance, we can only break through this unfortunate uh, conviction of ignorance is when we hold to this. This is what breaks us through ignorance. And, and, And there's a lot of different types of ignorance out there that sounds really good. It sounds really true and tickles our ears, but ignorance is only defeated with truth. And we need to hold to the truth. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ. That is not the way we have learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is so much Romans 12, 1 and 2. Heard that quoted this morning. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is part of the progressive sanctification that you take part in. You have skin in the game. Being co-heirs with Christ, as we'll talk about later, is an incredible blessing that you didn't earn. You don't deserve. It is unmerited favor that comes by the grace of God. But he is telling us now, be a part of this. This beautiful, incredible kingdom that was purchased by the blood of a perfect lamb. The God incarnate who came to earth because he loved you so much. He's saying, I'm going to share this with you. Take part in it now. Be part of this now. This progressive sanctification looks like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're all in a different spot here. But every single one of us are part of the progressive sanctification who are in Christ here. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's the initiator of it, just as he is your, he's the author and perfecter of your faith. He is also the author and perfecter of your sanctification. So we have to rely on him, but we have to take part. We have to be putting on Christ. Being baptized into Christ is his initiative, and yet he wants us to be a part of this. One in Christ, Galatians 3.28. Back to Galatians 3. He says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no favoritism when it comes to our Savior Jesus Christ. He does not look at you and say, Well, you know, you're not as good looking as Marshall Johnson, so I don't love you as much. That is a joke, so I hope you understand that. Now, he he, he understood how he created us. Well, you're just not as brilliant as this person, so I don't love you quite as much. Well, you're a girl and you're a boy, so I prefer. He made us all exactly the way he wanted us to. He makes no mistakes. This is precisely the way he wanted history to play out. He loves us all the same. We are one because of the incredible sanctifying blood of Christ. We are one in Christ. Now, that does not negate that we have different roles to play. That we have different gifts that we're given in, in in the church. That we have different situations and blessings and opportunities that he has given us through a variety of different ways, from financial opportunity to just freedom to live in a country like ours. Certainly there are different things that God has put us in in the body of Christ, but when we look at it from a spiritual perspective, there is a oneness in Christ that comes from an absolute, perfectly just God like ours. That's what we see. Here's what we see in a few different passages from Paul as I go through these quickly. Nevertheless, First Corinthians eleven, eleven. In the Lord, women is a woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. You can't say, "Well, I'm better than you because I'm a man," or you can't say, "I'm better than you because I'm a woman." These are all from God. We are all inter- intertwined in this. Different roles. You bet. Different opportunities, certainly. Different gifts, different responsibilities, certainly. But we all have the same message, the same Christ, unified in what we are to do. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 12, the very next chapter. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That sounds like what we just covered. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were to be made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit being immersed in that as we've already heard today. Moving on into John 17, I want to do this quickly because... We've got some good stuff coming. But here's what it says in verse 16. You've got 20 up there for context. Remember, Christ in his high priestly prayer is praying for his apostles who are right there in front of him. The night before his crucifixion, he says this as he's praying to the Father. He's talking about they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And he's asking them this, that they be unified in the truth, sanctified in the truth, and my word is truth. So, as we consider being one in Christ, knowing we have different roles to play and we have different, different gifts that we've been given, there is something that we can all solidify ourselves around. And once again, we come back to this common, common truth that we've talked about this morning, that the Word of God is what we're unified in, that this is the standard bearer for us. This is where we find what absolute truth is. As I discussed earlier, this is where we find the definition of who the Messiah is. This is where we define, find the definition of what salvation looks like on that wall over there. That, by the way, wasn't somebody's clever thoughts. That came from God's Word, right? As we go through, we've already looked at Ephesians 2 this morning. This is clearly in Scripture. That's where our truth comes from. We're unified in this. I, I love the idea of what we heard this morning. Spurgeon talked about how so, some of these Puritans, and he made mention of others, and others said this was true of Spurgeon too, that when you pricked him, It was as if he was bleeding Biblia, God's word. Dave mentioned that as well. I I loved that quote. That's an amazing thing to consider. consider. MacArthur made mention of these Puritans and their theology and how they spoke, that this was a divine propositional truth that they were urging their uh, parishioners to believe in. That this was true, not because it was their opinion, but because it was eternal, because it was divine. We're unified in truth. And as we look at verse 20 on, I, I don't want to focus on it. Notice this is to you. This is for us, not only for those who believe in me through their, uh, in, in their, his apostles, but he says, I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word. He's asking us to be unified. All of this passage is us being unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. He and the Father are one. We're one with him. That's what we see in 1720-23. And as we go forward, being in one in Christ, back to Galatians, going further in Galatians 5 and, and 6, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. He says the same thing in chapter 6, circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We heard that earlier as I referenced 2 Corinthians five seventeen. And as for all who walk by the rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon Israel. Now let us land the plane. Co-heirs, heirs with Christ. Here's what Galatians 3:29 says. If you are Christ's. So I got to stop. If you are Christ's. I'm going to make my appeal through God's going to make his appeal through me right now. I'm going to urge you you need to ask yourself this question. Are you of Christ? If you are of Christ, what I have to say to you is incredible. If you're not of Christ, we got to go back a few, and you're thinking, you've already gone too long. We can't go back. That means you're a son of the devil. Mm, That's hard. That means you're a daughter of the devil if you're not in Christ. So I'm going to urge you, consider your soul today. Consider what the Holy Spirit's convicting you with today, that the gospel of being saved by grace through faith in Christ alone Based on the Scriptures alone is all that can save you. If you haven't considered that, do that today. But if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 3, and he says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made to known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. I think Paul takes this comment very personally. It was a mystery to him. You realize what Paul was doing before Christ saved him on the road to Damascus? He was rounding up Christians just like you, putting them in prison and having them killed. That's how much he didn't understand the mystery of the gospel. He understands this now, and he understands this because Christ changed his life. And he says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All the promises given to Abraham in that covenant are extended to us. All the promises of salvation, comfort, joy, the burden of the sin is lifted, the slavery of the law is taken away. All of those are extended to us who are in faith. Romans 9 says this, 6 through 8, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What really matters is what you do with the gospel. That's what really matters. It's the only thing that matters. Adam and I were talking about... Just being fathers earlier on and the conviction of, of our one and how great that study of the Puritans has been and a challenging and the idea of the conviction of, of what our number one job is. And we, we both agreed. a number one job is to be a father that leads their family to understanding the most important principle that faith in Jesus Christ is all that matters. That's all there is. There's a lot of distractions in life. I think we were all convicted as we considered Just how long and and how much endurance those who studied the word before us, with less distractions in life, how how much they poured into the word, how patient is the word we heard they were with the word of God, how distracted we are today. I'm going to challenge you, Christian. Don't be distracted from the number one thing, that your family that has been put in your place, in your hands, sovereignly by God, and this is to grandparents and parents alike, is for the sole purpose for you to magnify his name to glorify him and nothing greater glorifies them glorifies him i say them it's the trinity glorifies him and that telling them of the good news of the gospel of jesus christ it's the greatest thing that you can do we've been grafted in as paul says in romans 11 and we don't have time to unpack this grafted in don't be prideful about this, be humble about this, understanding this incredible opportunity given to you by faith, that this happened because of Christ's work in you. That's why we are here. That's why we can be talking like this. That's why I can study this, proclaim it to you, why the gift has been given to me to be able to teach the word, and you as well, to be able to understand this is because of what he has done. And let's finish with this. Titus chapter 3. Paul says this to a young Titus, and he says this, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God Savior appeared, or of our God Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, just talked about that, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This happened because of him. Now, what's our reaction? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You have been saved for an incredible purpose, a kingdom we can't even fathom, that you get to take part in and be co-heirs with, co-regents with, and you don't sit back and say, Well, I'll just wait for that. I can't wait for that. No, what does he say? You think about that. You understand the promise that you are heirs according to the promise that these things are incredible, but we react this way that we're careful to devote ourselves to good works. These good works, Ephesians 2:10, that God had set up beforehand that we should walk in them. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Here's how Alistair Begg puts this, and I know this is small But I'll read it to you. Here's what Alistair says about this very concept. So while the promises that God made to Abraham were partially fulfilled in the Old Testament, nation of Israel, they were ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his people. Catch just a tiny glimpse of the immensity of this fulfillment, and your life will be forever changed. I'm going to repeat that one. Catch just a tiny glimpse of the immensity of this fulfillment, and your life will be forever changed. That's, that's just a great way to put this. If you are in Christ today, the promise that God made to Abraham has your name on it. He knows you personally. He knows your name. He knows your name, and you know him, and he knows you. That's an important concept to understand. He knows you, and you know him. You are a citizen of heaven and serve a king descended from Abraham called Jesus. What God began as he spoke to Abraham has come to encompass you as God's called people back into his kingdom to enjoy him face to face forever. Whatever else is true of you today, by faith you are a child of God, a member of Abraham's people, and an heir to those glorious promises. And let me just say, live like it then. Live like it then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible word that you gave us. And you gave to the church in Galatia, not realizing certainly they wouldn't know that 2,000 years later we would still be encouraged, convicted, and moved to act as co-heirs, as heirs according to the promise. A mystery to Paul and so many other Jews until you changed them and you changed us. We're so thankful and grateful that you have made us this, that you have made us alive in Christ that you have helped us to be born from above, that you caused us to be born from above, that you've given us this eternal life that we do not deserve. I pray that the challenge for us today is to understand around us there are many weeds that we'd like to change into wheat, that there are many of those who are sons of the devil that we'd like to make sons of light, sons of you. I pray that we are challenged to do that this week, that we live lives that are in line with that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.